Section 1 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 10, European Leaders. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by K. Hand. Beacon Lights of History, Volume 10, European Leaders, by John Lord. William the Fourth, Part 1. 1765 to 1837, English Reforms. On the death of George IV in 1830, a new political era dawned on England. His brother, William IV, who succeeded him, was not his equal in natural ability, but was more respectable in his character and more liberal in his views. With William IV began the undisputed ascendancy of the House of Commons in national affairs. Before his day, no prime minister could govern against the will of the sovereign. After George IV, as in France under Louis-Philippe, the king reigned but did not govern the chief of the ascendant political party was the real ruler when william the fourth ascended the throne the tories were still in power and were hostile to reform but the agitations and discontents of the latter days of george the fourth had made the ministry unpopular great political reformers had arisen like lords gray althorpe and russell and great orators like henry brougham and macaulay who demanded a change in the national policy the social evils which stared everybody in the face were a national disgrace they made the boasted liberty of the english a mockery there was an unparalleled distress among the laboring classes especially in the mining and manufacturing districts the price of labor had diminished while the price of bread had increased so wretched was the condition of the poor that there were constant riots and insurrections especially in large towns in war times, unskilled laborers earned from twelve to fifteen shillings a week, and mechanics twenty-five shillings. But in the stagnation of business which followed peace, wages suffered a great reduction, and thousands could find no work at all. The disbanding of the immense armies that had been necessary to combat Napoleon threw out of employ perhaps half a million of men, who became vagabonds, beggars, and paupers. The agricultural classes did not suffer as much as operatives in mills, since they got a high price for the grain. But the more remunerative agriculture became to landlords, the more miserable were those laborers who paid all they could earn to save themselves from absolute starvation. No foreign grain could be imported until wheat had risen to eighty shillings a quarter, footnote, a quarter of a gross ton, and footnote which unjust law tended to the enrichment of landowners, and to a corresponding poverty among the laboring classes. In addition to the high price which the people paid for bread, they were taxed heavily upon everything imported, upon everything consumed, upon the necessities and conveniences of life as well as its luxuries, on tea, on coffee, on sugar, on paper, on glass, on horses, on carriages, on medicines since money had to be raised to pay the interest on the national debt and to provide for the support of the government including pensions sinecures and general extravagance in the poverty which enormous taxes and low wages together produced there were not only degradation and squalid misery in england at this time but violence and crime and there was also great injustice in the laws which punished crime there were two hundred and twenty-three offences punishable with death if a starving peasant killed a hare, he was summarily hanged. Catholics were persecuted for their opinions. Jews were disqualified for holding office. Only men of comfortable means were allowed to vote. The universities were closed against dissenters. 
no man stood any chance of political preferment unless he was rich or was allied with the aristocracy who controlled the house of commons the nobles and squires not merely owned most of the landed property of the realm but by their rotten boroughs could send whom they pleased to parliament in consequence the house of commons did not represent the nation but only the privileged classes it was as aristocratic as the house of lords in the period of repose which succeeded the excitements of war the people began to see their own political insignificance and to agitate for reforms a few noble-minded and able statesmen of the more liberal party if any political party could be called liberal lifted up their voices in parliament for a redress of scandalous evils but the eloquence which distinguished them was a mere protest they were in a hopeless minority nothing could be done to remove or ameliorate public evils so long as the majority of the house of commons were opposed to reform it is obvious that the only thing the reformers could do whether in or out of parliament was to agitate to discuss to hold public meetings to write political tracts to change public opinion to bring such a pressure to bear on political aspirants as to ensure an election of members to the house of commons who were favorable to reform for seven years this agitation had been going on during the later years of the reign of george the fourth it was seen and felt by everybody that glaring public evils could not be removed until there should be a reform in parliament itself which meant an extension of the electoral suffrage by which more liberal and popular members might be elected on the accession of the new king there was of course a new election of members to the house of commons in consequence of the agitations of reformers public opinion had been changed and a set of men were returned to parliament pledged to reform the old tory chieftains no longer controlled the house of commons but whig leaders like brougham macaulay althorpe and lord john russell men elected on the issue of reform and identified with the agitations in its favor the old tory ministers who had ruled the country for fifty years went out of office and the whigs came into power under the premiership of lord grey although he was pledged to parliamentary reform his cabinet was composed entirely of noblemen with one exception there was no greater aristocrat in all england than this leader of reform a cold reticent proud man lord russell was also an aristocrat being a brother of the duke of bedford so was althorpe the son and heir of earl spencer the only man in the new cabinet of fearless liberality of views the idol of the people a man of real genius and power was brougham but after he was made lord chancellor the presiding officer of the chamber of peers he could no longer be relied upon as the mouthpiece of the people as he had been for years in the house of commons it would almost seem that the new ministry thought more and cared more for the dominion of the whigs than they did for a redress of the evils under which the nation groaned but the whigs were pledged to parliamentary reform and therefore were returned to parliament more at least was expected of them by the middle classes who formed the electoral body than of the tories who were hostile to all reforms men like wellington and eldon both political bigots great as were their talents and services in politics the tories resembled the extreme right in the french chamber of deputies the ultra conservatives who sustained the throne of charles x the whigs bore more resemblance to the centre of the chamber of deputies led by such men as guizot broglie and thiers favourable to a constitutional monarchy but by no means radicals and democrats like louis blanc ledru rollin and lamartine the whigs at best were as yet inclined only to such measures as would appease popular tumults create an intelligent support to the throne and favor necessary reform it was with them a choice between revolution and a fairer representation of the nation in parliament 
it may be reasonably doubted whether there were a dozen men in the house of commons that assembled at the beginning of the reign of william the fourth who were democrats or even men of popular sympathies but the majority conceded was from fear rather than from a sense of justice the great whig leaders of the reform movement probably did not fully foresee the logical consequences of the reform bill which was introduced and the change which on its enactment would take place in the english constitution even as it was the struggle was tremendous it was an epoch in english history the questions absorbed all other interests and filled all men's minds it was whether the house of commons should represent the privileged and well-to-do middle classes or the nation at least a larger part of the nation not the people generally but those who ought to be represented those who paid considerable taxes to support the government large towns as well as obscure hamlets owned by the aristocracy the popular agitation was so violent that experienced statesmen feared a revolution which would endanger the throne itself hence lord gray and his associates determined to carry the reform bill at any cost whatever might be the opposition as the only thing to be done if the nation would escape the perils of revolution lord john russell was selected by the government to introduce the bill into the house of commons he was not regarded as the ablest of the whig statesmen who had promised reform his person was not commanding and his voice was thin and feeble but he was influential among their aristocracy as being a brother of the duke of bedford head of a most illustrious house and he had no enemies among the popular elements russell had not the eloquence and power and learning of brougham but he had great weight of character tact moderation and parliamentary experience the great hero of reform henry brougham was as we have said no longer in the house of commons but even had he been there he was too impetuous uncertain and eccentric to be trusted with the management of the bill knowing this his party had elevated him to the woolsack he would have preferred the office of the master of the rolls a permanent judicial dignity with a seat in the house of commons but to this the king would not consent indeed it was the king himself who suggested the lord chancellorship for brougham lord russell was then the most prominent advocate of the bill which marked the administration of lord gray it was a great occasion march first eighteen thirty one when he unfolded his plan of reform to a full and anxious assembly of aristocratic legislators there was scarcely an unoccupied seat in the house at six o'clock he arose and in a low and humble manner invoked reason and justice in behalf of an enlarged representation he proposed to give the right of franchise to all householders who paid ten pounds a year in rates and who qualified to serve on juries he also proposed to disenfranchise the numerous rotten boroughs which were in the gift of noblemen and great landed proprietors boroughs which had an insignificant number of voters by which measure one hundred and sixty-eight parliamentary vacancies would occur these vacancies were to be partially filled by sending two members each from seven large towns and one member each from twenty smaller towns which were not represented in Parliament. Lord Russell further proposed to send two members each from four districts of the metropolis, which had a large population, and two additional members each from 26 counties. These together would add 94 members from towns and counties, which had a large population. To obviate the great expenses to which candidates were exposed in bringing voters to the polls, amounting to £150,000 in Yorkshire alone, the bill provided that the poll should be taken in different districts and should be closed in two days in the towns and in three days in the counties the general result of the bill would be to increase the number of electors five hundred thousand making nine hundred thousand in all we see how far this was from universal suffrage giving less than a million of voters in a population of twenty-five millions yet even so moderate and reasonable an enlargement of the franchise created astonishment and was regarded by the opponents as subversive of the british constitution 
and not without reason since it threw political power into the hands of the middle classes instead of into those of the aristocracy lord russell's motion was of course bitterly opposed by the tories the first man who arose to speak against it was sir h inglis a member of the university of oxford a fine classical scholar an accomplished gentleman and an honest man he maintained that the proposed alteration in the representation of the country was nothing less than revolution he eulogized the system of rotten boroughs since it favored the return to parliament of young men of great abilities who without the patronage of nobles would fail in popular elections and he cited the cases of pitt fox burke canning percival and others who represented appleby old sarum wendover and other places almost without inhabitants sir charles wetherall mr crocker and sir robert peel substantially took the same view lord althrop mr hume o'connell and others supported the government amid intense excitement for everybody saw the momentous issues at stake leave was at length granted to lord john russell to bring in his bill no less than seventy-one persons in the course of seven nights spoke for or against the measure the press headed by the times rendered great assistance to the reform cause while public meetings were everywhere held and petitions sent to parliament in favor of the measure the voice of the nation spoke in earnest and decided tones on the twenty first of march eighteen thirty one lord john russell moved the second reading of the bill but the majority for it was so small that ministers were compelled to make modifications after a stormy debate there was a majority of seventy-eight against the government the ministers undaunted at once induced the king to dissolve parliament and an appeal was made to the nation a general election followed which sent up an overwhelming majority of liberal members while many of the leading members of the last parliament lost their places on the twenty first of june the new parliament was opened by the king in person he was received with the wildest enthusiasm by the populace as he proceeded in state to the house of lords in his gilded carriage drawn by eight cream-colored horses on the twenty fourth of june lord john russell again introduced his bill this time in a bold manly and decisive manner in striking contrast with the almost suppliant tone which he assumed before on the fourth of july the question of the second reading was brought forward the discussion was carried on for three nights and on division the great majority of one hundred and thirty-six was with the government the only hope of the opposition was now in delay and factious divisions were made on every point possible as the bill went through the committee the opposition was most vexatious prayed made twenty-two speeches against the bill sugden eighteen pelham twenty-eight peel forty-eight croker fifty-seven and wetherall fifty-eight of course the greater part of these speeches were inexpressibly wearisome and ministers were condemned to sit and listen to the stale arguments which were all the opposition could make never before in a legislative body was there such an amount of quibbling and higgling and speaking against time and it was not until september nineteenth that the third reading came on the obstructions in committee having been so formidable and annoying on the twenty second of september the bill finally passed in the house of commons by a majority of one hundred and six after three months of stormy debate but the parliamentary battles were only partially fought victory in the end was certain but was not yet obtained it was necessary that the bill should pass the house of lords where the opposition was overwhelming on the very evening of september twenty second the bill was carried to the lords and lords althorpe and russell with one hundred other members of the commons entered the upper house with their message the lord chancellor brougham advanced to the bar with usual formalities and received the bill from the hands of lord john russell 
he then resumed his seat on the woolsack and communicated to the assembled peers the nature of the message earl gray moved that the bill be read a first time and the time was agreed to on the third of october the premier addressed the house in support of the bill a measure which he had taken up in his youth not so much from sympathy with the people as from conviction of its imperative necessity there was great majesty in the manner of the patrician minister as he addressed his peers his eye sparkled with intelligence and his noble brow betokened resolution and firmness while his voice quivered with emotion less rhetorical than his great colleague the lord chancellor his speech riveted attention for forty-five years the aged peer had advocated parliamentary reform and his voice had been heard in unison with that of fox before the french revolution had broken out lord warncliffe one of the most moderate and candid of his opponents followed lord melbourne courteous and inoffensive supported the bill because as he said he dreaded the consequences of a refusal of concession to the demands of the people rather than because he loved reform which he had previously opposed the duke of wellington of course uttered his warning protest and was listened to more from his fame as a warrior than from his merits as a speaker lord brougham delivered one of the most masterly of his great efforts in favor of reform and was answered by lord lyndhurst in a speech scarcely inferior in mental force the latter maintained that if the bill became a law the constitution would be swept away and even a republic be established on its ruins lord tenterden another great lawyer took the side of lord lyndhurst followed in the same strain by dr howley archbishop of canterbury on a division there was a majority of forty-one peers against the bill the news spread with rapidity to every corner of the land that the lords had defeated the reform for which the nation clamored never in england was there greater excitement the abolition of the house of lords was everywhere discussed and in many places angrily demanded people could do nothing but talk about the bill and politics threw all business into the shade an imprudent speech from an influential popular leader might have precipitated the revolution which the anti-reformers so greatly dreaded the disappointed people for the most part however restrained their wrath and contented themselves with closing their shops and muffling their church bells the bishops especially became objects of popular detestation the duke of newcastle and the marquis of londonderry being peculiarly obnoxious were personally assailed by a mob of incensed agitators the duke of cumberland brother of the king was dragged from his horse while the mob demolished the windows of the palace which the nation had given to the duke of wellington throughout the country in all the large towns there were mobs and angry meetings and serious disturbances at birmingham a rude and indignant meeting of one hundred and fifty thousand people vented their wrath against those who opposed their enfranchisement the most alarming of the riots took place in bristol of which sir charles wetherell was the recorder and he barely escaped being murdered by the mob who burned most of the principal public buildings the example of bristol was followed in other towns and the whole country was in a state of alarm in the midst of these commotions parliament was prorogued but the passage of the bill became more than ever an obvious necessity in order to save the country from violence and on december twelfth lord john russell brought forward his third reform bill which substantially like the first passed its second reading january seventeenth eighteen thirty two by the increased majority of one hundred and sixty two when considered in committee the old game of obstruction and procrastination was played by the opposition but in spite of it the bill finally passed the house on the twenty third of march the question which everybody now asked was what will the lords do it was certain they would throw out the bill as they did before unless extraordinary measures were taken by the government the creation of new peers enough to carry the bill was determined upon if necessary although regretted by lord gray 
To this radical measure there was great opposition on the part of the king, although he had thus far given the bill his support. But the reformers insisted upon it, if reform could not be accomplished in any other way. To use a vulgar expression, Lord Brougham fairly bulldozed his sovereign, and the king never forgave him. His assent was at last most reluctantly given, but the peers, dreading the great accession to the ranks of sixty or seventy liberal noblemen, concluded to give way, led by the Duke of Wellington, and the bill passed the House of Lords on the 4th of June. The Reform Bill of 1832 was the protest of the middle classes against evils which had been endured for centuries, a protest to which the aristocracy was compelled to listen. Amid terrible animosities and fearful agitations, reaching to the extremities of the kingdom, the bill was finally passed by the liberal members who set aside all other matters and acted with great unanimity and resolution. As noted above, during this exciting parliamentary contest, the great figure of Henry Brougham had disappeared from the House of Commons but more than any other man he had prepared the way for those reforms which the nation had so clamorously demanded, and which in part they had now achieved. From 1820 to 1831 he had incessantly labored in the lower house, but little was done without his aid. It would have been better for his fame had he remained a commoner. He was great not only as a parliamentary orator, but as a lawyer. His labors were prodigious. Altogether, at this period, he was the most prominent man in England, the most popular among the friends of reform, the most hated by his political enemies a fierce overbearing man with great talent for invective and sarcasm eccentric versatile with varied rather than profound learning when lord melbourne succeeded lord grey as premier brougham was left out of the cabinet being found to be irascible mischievous and unpractical he retired an embittered man to private life but not to idleness he continued to write popular and scientific essays articles for reviews and biographical sketches taking an interest in educational movements and in all questions of the day he was always a lion in society and next to sir walter scott was the object of great curiosity to american travelers although great as a statesman orator lawyer and judge his posthumous influence is small compared with that which he wielded in his lifetime which indeed may be said of most statesmen the most noted exception to the rule being lord bacon with brougham in the upper house lord john russell had become the most prominent man in the lower but being comparatively a poor man he was contented to be only paymaster of the forces the most lucrative office in the government his successful conduct of the great reform bill gave him considerable prestige in the second ministry of lord melbourne eighteen thirty four to eighteen forty one lord russell was at first colonial and afterward home secretary whatever post he filled he filled it with credit and had the confidence of the country for he was honest liberal and sensible he was not however an orator although he subsequently became a great debater i have often heard him speak both in and out of parliament but i was never much impressed or even interested he had that hesitating utterance so common with aristocratic speakers both clerical and lay and which i believe is often assumed in short he had no magnetism without which no public speaker can interest an ordinary audience but he had intelligence understood the temper of the house and belonged to a great historical family which gave him parliamentary influence he represented the interests of the wealthy middle classes liberal as a nobleman but without any striking sympathy with the people after the passage of the reform bill he was unwilling to go to any great lengths in further reforms and therefore was unpopular with the radicals although his spirit was progressive it was his persistent advocacy of parliamentary reform which had made him prominent and famous and it was his ability as a debater which kept him at the head of his party historians speak of him without enthusiasm but with great respect the notable orators of that day were o'connell and brougham 
As a platform speaker, probably no one ever surpassed the Irish leader. End of section 1.